This is the Educational Triage Podcast. Welcome. We invite you to come along with us on an exploration of interviews, issues, and other exciting and relevant topics in education, especially alternative education. They say alternative education is a laboratory for mainstream education. Why? Well, join us every week and listen in as Philip Summers and I, Tony Hunt, jump in feet first to discuss issues that may affect our classes, students, communities, as well as our teaching. Please subscribe if you enjoy and find relevance in what you experience here. And if you haven't left a quick review, please do. We appreciate your candor and insights so we can improve as we move forward. Now, let's see what's on board today. And welcome back to the Educational Triage Podcast, people. And we are so over the moon right now. We have an exciting show. We have Tara Garcia Matthewson from the Heckinger Report. Hey, Tara. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And we also have, of course, our Philip. Hey, Philip. Aloha. Good to see you again. So, Tara, why don't you give us a little bit of background on your research and your reporting, and let's see where we go from there. Yeah, so I guess the the framing for all of this reporting for me, I came back um, from a year-long maternity leave in September of 2021, and um, this was the point where basically the entire country was reopening after um, pandemic-related school closures. I was trying to catch up on a year's worth of not being up on education news, and uh, a lot of what I kept seeing was... Um, student behavior being a problem in schools. And um, reading back, I was seeing that in the prior year, there had been a lot of warnings from student advocates, from um, psychologists, from um, social workers saying, we need to anticipate that students are going to come back to schools with a lot of needs and we need to be ready for it. Um, And so I was curious about whether schools were reopening ready for it. Um, And as I was seeing a lot of um, reporting of just really difficult student behavior, um, I was curious about whether suspensions were coming back really stronger than ever or whether schools were reopening with some kind of um, trauma-informed and and ready um, ready for what people knew that they should have expected. Um, And so I actually started all the discipline reporting with some records requests to medium and large districts around the country and saw that um, basically all of them, suspension had had returned to pre-pandemic levels, and some of them suspensions were higher than pre-pandemic. And in just a a handful, suspensions were lower. And so you have districts like Dallas that had introduced this entirely new or I guess they had expanded a concept of reset centers where they were trying to get rid of suspensions. You know, there were some around the country that were doing, trying more innovative things or expanding um, programs to try and reduce suspensions. But it was clear that, um, you know, we came back from years of interrupted learning when it was, it became very clear how important it was for kids to be in school. And we were doing the same thing that we've always done in terms of kicking kids out. And so that was the beginning of my kind of exploration of punitive discipline. And like you said, I went on to explore corporal punishment. Um, I looked at 
um, I went very deep into a school in a county in Mississippi for that story. Mississippi has long been the leader in, in corporal punishment use. And then um, I, in Arizona, went very deep onto the practice of suspending students for absenteeism and attendance-related infractions. And then um, the last big project that I worked on um, was in California about how schools push students out through the transfer process. So it looks like, it feels a lot like an expulsion to a student, but it's recorded as a transfer. And so therefore it's a less transparent form of exclusionary discipline. And it's also um, one in which students do not have due process protections or um, just as much uh, due process and, and kind of regulation from the state. So I know that with the corporal punishment in the 19 states that have it, and, and when you did your story, down in Mississippi, that the parents could sign an opt-out form, but they would still bypass that if they felt that it was more expeditious to paddle the student. So yeah, um, I'm just I'm just curious as to because to me it seems antiquated. I think I was in second or third grade when they got rid of that here. Mm-hmm in our schools. So, um, cause I'm talking 66, 67, I think it was. And I so I was battling 67. Were you? Yes, I was in school, in school. The wow. principal took me to his office and made me hold my ankles and paddled me. Wow. Do you remember what you did? Yeah. I retaliated. Uh, I was being picked on by a kid and he got, he picked a fight and, they saw me. It was the, you know, the retaliator got seen. And so I was the one that got in trouble. I was bitter. I guess <laughs> I was just defending myself. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just, it just seems as though we've made so much progress and yet 19 states, which <laughs> is un- just unfathomable to me, have held on to that practice. It, is there any real reason why did you find, were you able to probe any kind of psychological rationale that they have for doing that? Yes, I tried to get um, deep into that. I tried to talk to a lot of people who supported corporal punishment. And um, and actually in this county in Mississippi, um, I think in a lot of ways, it made me think of inertia and the way that, um, you know, things keep going as they are until they're interrupted. And um, these opt-out options help prevent backlash. They So basically, you can have a school system where the only kids who get paddled, as they call it in Mississippi, the only kids who get paddled are the ones whose parents support it and are probably using some form of corporal punishment at home as well. And so um, as cult, as kind of culture has changed over time and, and more people um, disapprove of corporal punishment, you have a smaller and smaller group of kids who are even eligible for it. One, because most kids don't go to schools where principals allow it. And even if they do, um, their parents support it. And so kids are not the ones who have power in schools, as you know. And so if kids are the ones who don't want it, they're not in positions to get rid of it. Um, and so the parents who don't want it often get to opt their kids out and so then stop fighting for, you know, the system as a whole or other other children. Um, so I think 
Um, there's been kind of a protection of the practice because of that structural factor. Um, and then I think, you know, it remains in communities where it's very common at home. And so if it's common at home for a lot of families, it doesn't seem like much of a stretch. Um, and a key part of my reporting is that parents were being faced with a choice. Schools were saying, would you like us to paddle your children or would you like us to suspend them? Because if you don't let us paddle them, then we're going to send them home. And so for families who work, for families who care about their kids getting education and sitting in class and being able to hear the lessons from the teachers, um, corporal punishment seems like, one, the better academic option for a kid. And um, in some kind of family circumstances, school is childcare. As we all learned during COVID, school is really important childcare for a lot of families. Um, and so even if they didn't like the idea of corporal punishment, they still chose it over a suspension. Um, and so do, part of the question, sorry. I'm well, how do the laws allow that? They must be yeah. specifically allowing, you know, except in cases of you can't right. strike a child, but you know, it's, is that, it's yeah. pretty explicit than the laws. Where it remains, it's very open. Schools have a lot of power to decide. Uh, um, so states pass a lot of laws about school discipline, um, they could restrict. There's a handful of states that restrict it. Um, you can you can use corporal punishment, but not on kids with disabilities, for example. Um, Mississippi changed their law a few years ago and said um, you could not use it on students with disabilities. And I saw in the state data, I am waiting for the next round of federal data to see how this plays out. But in the state data, it looked like Mississippi schools um, there was a precipitous drop in use of corporal punishment after mm. it was banned on students with disabilities. And I believe that is because the way that it was worded in the law, what I heard from superintendents is that the way it was worded in the law, um, the students with disability category was very big. And mm. so, you know, when you think, when you think of disabilities in schools, it's not just kids with severe intellectual mm -hmm. cognitive kind of disabilities. This is like ADHD is a disability as well. And so if, exactly. Like that. That, yeah. And so if the law is worded very broadly, you know, some of the principals I talked to said it's not fair to have a classroom of kids and only be able to use this punishment on one and not the other. And so we decided not to use it at all. Um, other states, I am trying to remember which one. I think Oklahoma currently has this in its legislature right now, but their ban on students with disabilities is only students with extreme extreme disabilities. And so I don't expect to see such a precipitous drop in Oklahoma as we have seen in, in Mississippi in the mm. last few years. Um, I mean, so legislation matters. It is directing school and district behavior. Um, and part of the question in my story is whether this is something that should even be left to the states. You know, is it fair that we have this increasingly small pool of students who, um, you know, could face this kind of punishment that would that is unheard of for most of the country? Um, yeah. But at the federal level, basically the Republican kind of party line is that this is a local control issue and we need to leave it to, to people who know their communities best. Yeah, well, it, it it sort of amazes me that children can be struck, <laughs> you know, legally. Exactly. And it, I mean, in the states where it remains, in most of them, there are laws on the books that say kids cannot be hit in foster homes. They cannot be hit in juvenile detention facilities. So, mm. I mean, it is recognized that it is not acceptable in a lot of different scenarios, but 
in these states, it remains acceptable in schools. <laughs> but in schools, it's okay. Exactly. Yikes. Okay. Actually, just a couple of weeks ago was the um, International Day to End Corporal Punishment around the country. This is an, an international movement in most other countries. It is not, um, the battle is not over corporal punishment use in schools. It's mm-hmm. at home, actually. So um, dozens of other countries have already banned corporal punishment use at home as well. And and I think it's 165 um, countries that ban it in schools. So basically all of them. What does a student need to do in order to be punished? I mean, oh. how how petty do we have to be in order for this to take effect? Because <laughs> it seems to me that it could be quite corrupt. So if if Philip was an administrator and he didn't like little Johnny B down there, he would just be looking. And so we're dealing with confirmation bias constantly. And mm-hmm. poor little Johnny, he's just standing there because he can't even sit down anymore. Mm-mm. So how is is there something to that? Yeah. And um, sociologists and social scientists have done lots of studies to show this and, and look at the um, the bias that's behind it, the kind of psychological and cultural factors Um Punishment is very subjective. And Philip's own case, you know, if the teacher had looked a split second sooner, did the teacher notice you retaliating because the teacher was poised to be looking at you because you were kind of a troublemaker in other cases? Or was it just a kind of uh, accident of timing and the teacher looked over and saw you? I was a little troublemaker sometimes. So there are kids that get reputations. There are teachers that um, there have been some studies about um, when teachers are primed to look for misbehavior. Researchers studied what children they watched in in watching a group of children. And there were racial differences that teachers tended to watch black children, expecting them to be the troublemakers in a classroom. Um, So there are a lot of racial elements to this as well. I'm not, I don't have it in Mm -hmm. front of me. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to cite general studies here since I'm not looking at any notes. (laughs) I know the study that you're talking about. And they look for the three Bs. The three Bs are receive 50% more suspensions or expulsions. And that's if you are a big black boy. Right. Yeah. The data is, the data is devastating. Um, The gender imbalance Mm -hmm. is striking and corporal punishment. It's like it's 80% Mm -hmm. of kids who are hit in school settings are boys. The, I mean, the suspension numbers are also the, the gender imbalance is striking. The racial imbalance, especially for black children is striking. And then depending on the location, you have some overrepresentation of Latino students. You have some overrepresentation mm-hmm. of indigenous students. Um, but black boys for sure are at a nexus. Yeah. Because I think in that same yeah. study, they monitored how the teachers were actually observing what was going on and they were they were not paying attention to any of the other kids who may have been doing things that they should have taken a look at. And, and like you mentioned, confirmation bias, that's part of it. You see, you see someone doing something who Mm -hmm. you already think is kind of a bad kid. The same exact behavior is filtered through a different lens. If you see someone as a good kid. And it doesn't matter what race you are as a teacher, because they found it clear across the board. Well, as a society, we've also encouraged fear of big black men. 
many of those criminal characters, those menacing characters are big black men. And that just is a prejudice that we get from our society, our media, our outlets, everything. We think about that all the time. Big black men are the scariest of all. But see, when they talked about the three Bs, this is going to be a little bit of a surprise. They were talking about preschool. That They were talking about three and four-year-olds when they were doing it. (sighs) And it goes back because I was listening to Dr. Rosemary Allen. Um, out of Denver, and she was talking about how eight months old, kids will go into a place, they will go into daycare or the pre-K setting, because statistics show that if if children enter into a pre-K at an early age, that it actually helps them cognitively to achieve and do better in school in the future. But mm-hmm. you have eight-month-old kids throwing a temper tantrum and being suspended or expelled from the program. And the reason is because kids do this because this is when they learn how to self-regulate. And Philip, you, you worked in pre-K and as, as I did. And and for me, it was 40 years ago, but it's still the same thing. I mean, a kid would throw a temper tantrum and you just put them to a place where they could be removed and you'd say, okay, I'm going to keep an eye on you. But when you decide that you can stop and rejoin us, then just let us know. Or if you need anything, let me know. So I would keep an eye eye on them, but they were removed from the group and then they could join the group when they were ready. But so they were taken care of. But these people, they talked about how... um what they were looking for was whether or not they were going to be injurious or be a danger to any of the other students or anybody else. So that was the typical reason for that. But I never would have thought, I never would have considered that back then. Yeah, we have very little data about discipline in early childhood settings or in preschool or pre-K settings. Um, The federal government reported it out through the civil rights data collection once. I think I think 2017-18 is the last time we have data, and I think it's the only time we have data. Um, But that data set is incredibly messy. Um, It's it's pretty untrustworthy in terms of. what was showing up there, but, um, there was another, there was a survey study done, I want to say out of Yale, um, that looked at early childhood settings and, and it is believed that, um, exclusionary discipline, suspensions and expulsions are more common in pre-K than at any other grade level, actually expulsions in particular. Mm -hmm. And those follow the kids when they, because it follows their record takes them into grade school. So if they were expelled for one reason and they want to go someplace else, well, that's on their record. And then when they're in elementary school, that's still on their record. So what does it teach the kid about what they're worth or their value in a sense and who's there to help them if they need help or how do they resolve these issues? If, if whenever they, have a need yeah. that's not being met in a, let's say that they're just hyperactive. Or maybe you have people who just don't understand that when you have a gang of little kids, mm-hmm. you might as well use super glue because you're not going to get them all to sit down 
and you've got to take a lot of deep breaths. You've got to have a great attitude. <laughs> but if they're not willing to sit there for 10 minutes quietly, and there's examples of this that in the articles that I was reading, that a kid will, they will look for confirmation and affirmation from the teacher. But if they don't get it, then they just lose it. And then they get picked on by the teacher. But if they're not getting it then, then what are we telling them about later on in life? So some of this is actually starting to happen. Yeah. Two things. One, you pointed out the idea um, that kids are just learning self-regulation at this time. Um, I I have learned some interesting things around teacher training and, and some elements that are missing around developmentally appropriate behavior. And this is true at the early childhood level, all the way up through adolescence, that teachers don't, um, they don't get the training to understand what is a developmentally appropriate response to adversity or frustration or, um, you know, embarrassment, things things that students are responding to in classrooms um, in ways that are inappropriate behavior. If the teachers knew more about where it was coming from, that it was a, this, that it was a place of, you know, not having the skills to problem solve rather than being a disrespectful kid who was trying to, you know, disrupt a classroom because they didn't like the teacher or, or something more malicious like that, that little shift that, that can come from pretty minimal, kind of training um, can really help um, help teachers respond, I think, a little more patiently in the classroom. Right. And um, I think, and Philip, you and I were talking, I don't remember how long ago, but students tend to act out when they feel lost and they don't feel as though that they can participate because they, because they don't have whatever it is. They don't have that chunk of knowledge or... Yeah, well, when Tara said that about that, when they don't get that um, response from this teacher, then they're left with basically innovating their own responses. And we're talking about a three, four, but even five even adolescents, their own even teenagers. Uh, oh, and especially in adolescents, right? They innovate too, and they get themselves, really they have themselves innovate. removed. Yeah. So they don't have to look. So they don't have to feel humiliated, yeah. and they don't have to be the clown. And like you're saying, a lot of academics call it push out, um, the process of making kids feel like they are not welcome in schools mm -hmm. and they get this lesson over and over again if schools continue to push yeah. them out rather than figure out why they're behaving the way they are or, you know, finding a way to help them stay. Um, the, you know, push out ends up looking like dropout right. or forced transfer or some of these um, on the, sh the edges of exclusionary discipline. Um, Right. <laughs> Legal problems. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's well known that in the, in the neighborhoods, you know, when drug dealing showed up, you make a whole lot more money just right away working within that business than you can even part of, I mean, absentee. So. Yeah. And absenteeism is, a, is at crisis levels right now. And part of the reason is a lot of kids found out during COVID yeah. when they, um, where, you know, school was part-time and online and asynchronous that they could, a lot of them were working and helping support their families and just never went back. But then they also, I think what they also may have yeah. experienced is a sense of freedom. Because if you are locked up in that building all day and you are experiencing what most 
workers experience when they have to go into their cubicle all day long and they get a half hour for lunch, but they're still in the same building. Mm -hmm. And then they're back in there and they really don't have any other way to let off some steam in a sense. And these, and these, these are kids and it's gotten worse ever since we started all this testing, (laughs) trying to get them going. And we don't allow them the process time or the time to actually just kick up their feet and just feel footloose and fancy free for lack of a better term, but they need to have a lot more activity, a lot more kinesthetics going on in order for them to um, process the information and also just to shake off all this energy because they're still growing and their brains are still developing until what, 24, 25? Well, that was part of the the kind of early behavior, you know, talking to people, where is all this coming from? Why are we seeing all these behavior problems as schools are reopening? And that's what people were talking about. It's like these kids went for sometimes over a year being able to sit however they wanted, lie down with their laptop on their laps, um, get up and get snacks whenever they wanted, go to the bathroom whenever they wanted. Um, they, they weren't, they didn't have teachers constantly um, you know, redirecting their behavior, giving them more rules. Um, so they're coming back. Not only are they having to deal with the kind of social elements of being in groups of kids their age um, and dealing with all the things that come with that, um, all of the rules and structure to school was, you know, they had gotten out of the habit or for some kids, yeah. they never got into the habit of being a middle schooler or being a high schooler or being an elementary school because they were at those transition points at the beginning of COVID. And so, um, it was a lot of work to get kids re-used to sitting still for a whole day, following rules for a whole day. Has there been any research into um, schools and their structures getting more rigid or just generally, you know, more discipline structures built in since the pandemic and more rigid attendance policies. Yeah. In Arizona, I was looking at schools that diverged. Um, So this was the project around schools suspending students for absenteeism and attendance related infractions. And so we, um, and so I worked on, on this project with Maria Poletta of the Arizona center for investigative reporting. And we requested data from basically all school districts in the state. And we got back um, records from about 150. And so we looked at all of their suspensions for over a five-year period. And so we could see before COVID and after whether there were changes. um, And we were specifically looking at attendance-related suspensions. Um, So we could see schools that um, trended in one direction or, or another. And so there were some that suspended for attendance more often after COVID. And in talking to them, um, yeah, they're saying, you know, rules are rules. We spent this many weeks training students on what they needed to be doing. And when they didn't do it, they needed to face a consequence. Um, Whereas you had other schools that said, we are really just trying to get kids here for any length of time. We want them to be in school. We know that the suspension is not yeah. going to help them come back after. It's not going to help solve the problem that we're trying to solve. And so we're just not doing that. And so you have, this is a very local kind of 
problem and, and question and, and set of solutions. And mm-hmm. so, yeah. yeah, some schools are definitely making a return to the the kind of zero tolerance policies of the nineties. And some are trying a much, a much more, um, generous. The reason I say that is uh, it's sort of anecdotal evidence, but I guess teach a lot and I, I go to multiple schools and each and every mm. one of them seem to be a little bit more rigid. A little bit more now, you know, we mean this and security is a little more acute. And I'm thinking that's sort of the wrong direction after a pandemic you know, to, to close up and structure more than, yeah. It, because the kids, as Tony was saying, you know, they've been used to, to lying around their jammies and, and doing pretty much what they want. And all of a sudden now it's like reality time. And I think the pandemic changed a lot of things. And there's a lot of adults who want things to go back. But a lot of adults are begging for things not to change for them because they want to, they want to stay remote. Exactly. Mm -hmm. But my former high school in the fall, they did the same thing two years running. And I can't believe that they would do that because somehow or other, they thought the results would be different. They began the year not enforcing the rules, just being very lax and letting everybody get used to doing what they should do. And then they put the hammer down right after the holidays. And they said, now you will be on time. Now you will. And I'm thinking, how about you just gracefully start introducing things and get one down and then sort of let people ease back into what the rules actually are and start looking for ways to innovate. How do you innovate? How do you address the students? Because you're not showing them a whole lot of grace when everything's still the same. You just try to repackage it in some kind of used gift bag that doesn't work. It's interesting also the timing where you're saying when they started to to crack down on it, because there mm-hmm. was just a study that came out, um, Jason Akonafua, and I'm sure I'm butchering his last name, but he's um, he is in California and he was on a team of researchers who looked at um, lots and lots of data um, to see and track the, um, the kind of rises and falls in... Um, in suspensions over the course of a school year. And I'm pretty sure one of the peaks was uh, right before a holiday, the the winter break. Um, and so I'm just wondering, I want to look at his, that, you know, that team's chart again and see, that seems like probably not a good time. Well, actually that be t- just prior to Thanksgiving and going up to the winter break, is the hardest time for a lot of the students, especially Mm -hmm. students in alternative ed, because that is is when their families are going to be going on. The kids are all fed because they go to school. They have breakfast and they have lunch. And the school that where I was, we Mm -hmm. provided food boxes. We did all kinds of things for the families. And Mm -hmm. so we would put things together and they would do that, but they would do it for the kids that they had targeted that they would target. They -hmm. weren't able to get all the students. And they said, well, you know, we just can't in a school of over 2000 kids. But if you think about how you have nothing and yet you see these people to, from your viewpoint, 
experiencing all this largesse and you kind of want that, but you're just fighting for survival and it's cold and maybe you don't have enough heat. So that's, this is a time of crisis for them. So, and then when they come back from that, people say, did you have a good holiday? And instead of saying, um, what do you need? How was your break? Which is mm-hmm. far simpler. Mm-hmm. But but I think everybody wants to share in what they experienced. But I and this goes back to what you were talking about, how do you address these little tweaks um in addressing those students? Well, part of it is even knowing what's going on with each individual mm-hmm. student and some teachers yeah. um in some schools, you know, sometimes there's the setup where teachers can get to know their students. Sometimes I know it is the case that there are structures keeping that from happening. Sometimes it's teachers that are not choosing to do that. Um, But yeah, if you don't even know, how can you possibly offer the more generous kind of reaction? Well, I think you have to care. And I think, and, and in a sense, caring, you have to be vulnerable. And I, and there may be something about being vulnerable that terrifies many teachers, I think, because that they feel that that puts them down at the student level. Mm-hmm. But students want a real teacher. They want somebody that they can talk to. Um, and that doesn't mean that you lose your seniority or I don't know what else you would call authority. it. Your authority. Authority, yeah. yes. Um, over them. But respect you more when you can be frank with them but you're frank in a caring kind of way. They may not mm-hmm. like what you say, mm-hmm. but if, if, but you have, yeah, it's fair, but you it's also fair. have to take a look and you have to come up with some ideas fair. and you have to be, be willing to throw the rules out the door and say, okay, instead of that today, let's do this and get something going where you're not fighting any of the kids, you're doing something because just quiet work doesn't always, how do you build a community in your own classroom? You know, one of the issues with the kids too over the holidays is that some of them do not want to spend that time around mm-hmm. their family or parents. Or there's Sometimes it's a lot of abuse. They just don't want to be around and the thought of, oh my God. Yeah. Two weeks Plenty of adults on, don't. Do I mean, like there's always that. so much chatter about how do you get through the Thanksgiving yeah. dinner with your families? How do you, I mean, it doesn't end. Nope. No, it doesn't. And they, a lot of them act out just to get things riled up. They just, I don't know if they're doing it intentionally. They don't have an objective so much as they just, again, don't know how to well, handle it's it. It's self-regulation and with trauma-informed education. And if you've been trauma-informed trained, these are things that you work on with the students. But it's hard for a classroom teacher with 38 kids in the classroom to teach a kid how to self-regulate. I mean, how do you do that while you're working with all of the others? And so what are the strategies that you have? So you need to be able to develop a relationship with that one student and have some kind of a cue with them. Don't share that cue with another teacher. They need to figure that out on their own. But you develop your own relationship with that student, and that's what's going to carry you. And it's going to help. But I think that, and I think you pointed this out by saying that we do need to establish the relationships. That's sort of the foundation of everything anyway. 
And I don't think that people know how to <laughs> yeah. do that. I know people who talk relationships, but they don't know how to do it. But I think that you've got to be able to vary things. You have to be, what do you do with your own kids? Let's put it that way. If you've got your own children and you want them to do something, how do you convince them that they are going to do it and you turn it into a learning and fun experience? Sometimes you have to throw the rules out the door and you just have to say, you know what, let's do this instead. And sometimes you end up with something far better. And yeah, it helps. But sometimes it's it's often challenging, right? Sometimes you have the right. patience. I think people um I yeah. I've worked in a childcare setting for um it was a work study job in college. So I have a little bit of childcare setting. I've done um like summer camps teaching high school students investigative reporting, but I've never been in a classroom tasked with developing relationships with kids over the course of the year. Um, but I think a lot of us who have not been in schools can think about our parenting interactions and have that help um, create a little mm -hmm. bit of empathy with teachers and, and kind of the challenge in front of you all. Um, but I know even just in parenting conversations, it's it requires so much patience to help kids through tantrums and to help them through all of the, all of the ups and downs in a kid's day. Um, and it's just it's been interesting this year. I I am a much better parent because of all the research I've done into school <laughs> discipline. So the lessons are going in both directions for sure. Yeah, and and you know, teachers are not we're not psychoanalysts we are not therapists we so don't count on us to be able to do everything because teachers are they're pulled really really thin now and they're still being asked to do more the they're the frogs in the pot in a sense is what people tell me um and i experienced that but now let's move on to pbis because you bring this up and whether or not, and for those of you who don't know, it's the positive behavior. Interventions and supports. Yeah. How does that work? And from your perspective, what does that do and how does that work? And is it effective or are people manipulating it so that it works the way that they want it to work? rather than the way it's supposed to be working. Yeah, well, PBIS is um, one of the most studied behavior interventions in schools. Um, so it's one that, um, for example, is in the federal legislation that is um, would ban corporal punishment in schools. Um, part of the legislation is to say, you know, we want to take away this disciplinary option for schools, and we are also going to create this pool of money to help train um, schools and PBIS. Um, so it's one that has a, a lot of research support behind it. When implemented well, it can work very well to help schools uh, manage student behavior and create more, um, more you know, smoothly functioning systems. Um, but I, this does come up in my corporal punishment story. The school that I was drawn to in Mississippi because of data showing that they use corporal punishment more widely across their student body than any other, any other school in the country. Um, they also are the district leader in PBIS. And so, you know, there are times, so what PBIS, the, the model is generally that um, you have a multi-tiered 
system where you have um, you have universal kind of policies and be, so, so in the discipline case you have um, often schools will have a, a discipline matrix and you know these are the behaviors that you should be showing in different settings um, if so just setting the proper expectations for kids often creates, you know, for a huge chunk of kids, that's enough. Tell them the rules and they will follow them. Um, so for kids that need more, mm-hmm. then you create um, additional interventions that will help keep those kids on track. So if you have a kid who starts acting out before lunch every day, you kind of notice that trend and can set up something to help you know, maybe give them a snack or um, distract them before lunch to kind of keep them on task. So that's the kind of individual student level interventions. Um, And then for kids that need even more, that's when you turn outside of the classroom and get more, um, you know, get a social worker involved, a counselor, um, something like that. And so the goal, it's called positive behavioral interventions and supports. The goal is helping redirect student behavior in more positive ways. A lot of schools use incentive systems um, to try and incentivize good behavior. But really, this kind, this model can be fit around all kinds of disciplines. So um, it is not the case that this removes the need to discipline a child. Um, and so for this school, it's, they had kind of a green, yellow, red system when kids were behaving well, they were in a green and then, you know, you kind of went through the stoplight there. Um, when you hit red, you needed some kind of punitive response according to the, the school's protocol. Uh, and sometimes the punitive response is being sent to the principal's office to get paddled. And so PBIS leaders in Mississippi said that that wasn't the way the, the system was supposed to be implemented. This wasn't kind of the vision of PBIS, um, but the school had a reputation in the county that they had gone through more trainings. They were farther along in implementing PBIS. And so you see, I mean, the devil's in the details. (laughs) Implementation is important. Um, So it can go either way, but PBIS is a system that uh, in legislation I'm seeing all over the country that is recommending Mm -hmm. schools move away from punitive discipline. PBIS is routinely recommended as one that schools should implement. Right. You have a series of, you just reminded me of what it was. There are tier one, tier two, and tier three students. Tier one are the are the regular kids, the kids that don't seem to have any kind of an issue. Tier two are the ones who just aren't quite fitting in quite right. And tier three are the high flyers. They're the ones that you really have an eye on. And there's very few of those. So Mm -hmm. in order to, and you find all kinds of supports for them. Um, The other supports for the other kids tend to be easily moderated and taken care of. So I'm I'm just kind of surprised that they would resort to corporal punishment for those students. And then, um, and not to like flip us around, but it feels like we could ask about the transfer students in California, because is California implementing PBIS and Are they doing the RTI, which is uh, route to intervention? Mm -hmm. Um, I am not sure what the statewide recommendations are around PBIS. I would be shocked if California Department of Education were not um, encouraging Mm -hmm. schools to go that route. Um, From what I know about California, it seems like they probably have a pretty robust 
statewide support um, for helping schools implement PBIS, but that is assumption based on, on, on minimal research in that direction. Okay. So my other question then is, why would they transfer a kid to another school to get rid of them and make it another school's, make that child another school's problem then? They haven't addressed anything. They're not doing, they're not going through normal protocols. The parents don't feel as though they have any recourse, correct? Right. Because they're not really, they're not really given any kind of, no sense of direction or knowledge about what they can do. Can they sue the district and stop it? Or, but do most of these parents even have the means to do something like that? Yeah, I'm not sure what the grounds would be for suing. Um, and because of the vagueness in the law, schools do have some protections. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't, I don't, I haven't heard of anybody suing to stop a transfer. There are people who retain attorneys to help them fight it. Um, but because state law gives students no real protections to, to fight a transfer, um, they don't really have the grounds to go off of. And so, or ground to build on, I guess would be the saying. Um, yeah. So attorneys will try and convince the district to change their minds and take back the transfer. Um, but once it's approved, there's very little option. 16,300 in one year. Yeah. That is, and that averages, I think, what did we say? 661 per alternative program, because there were 53 alternative programs in that area, which is a huge influx. And they probably were, they probably went out to some other schools too. Or some no, but you are, sorry, no. So you're pulling in data that we looked at or that I got across um about 20 different districts, you okay. are, you're, the school number you're citing, the 53 alternative schools is LA Unified. Right. Um, and so for LA, I actually did not get the data about the number of students transferred. That was something that they were clearly reporting incorrectly oh, to okay. the state. Um, but yeah, there were 53 alternative schools. Um, you have enrollment records from the state that show there are tens of thousands of students enrolled in those schools, but there's no transfer records to indicate how they got there. Um, so LA Unified was was kind of a strange case. But the 16,300, that, um, that was across 20, 20 large districts in California that I looked for. Those were students transferred to alternative schools. That's still a huge number. And the alternative schools, I'm not sure how they fund alternative schools and programs in California. Here in Oregon, alternative schools, private alternative schools, receive 80% of what it takes to, to educate a child in the mm. regular school. And um, But charter schools- How do they settle on that? <laughs> I don't remember- um, I, you know, I work with a couple of people from the Department of Ed, and they keep explaining it to me, but it's still, it just makes no, no sense to me. Is it safe to assume that there are as many different policies and procedures for transfer and removal of students? For sure, as there, as there are districts. districts. And so I would say... Basically. I mean, everybody yeah, has and, their and own probably, way to do it, right? 
um, even more yeah. than that, because you have a district level policy that some principals will decide to interpret one way and others, you know, there are plenty of principals that would say, I'm never going to kick a kid out. I don't want to f- do this forced transfer. And so that'll never happen in some schools where you have others that will recommend a student for a transfer. Ultimately in California, the, the transfer decision comes from the district level. So the way it would work is a principal would recommend a student for transfer and then the, the district, um, a district person would mm. be the one actually assigning it. Um, but yeah, discipline is very local. How does that, how does that address the issues that mm-hmm. the student is having? Because in the research, if you look at students that are transferred to an alternative school, it doesn't matter what state it is, unless they have an individual learning plan that follows them. And if you have no records, they don't know where they are. What kinds of assessments are being run on the students when they show up? And uh, do they have the staff? Do they have the resources? Because I I believe that you and I were talking and you even talked about how under-resourced and underfunded many of those programs are. And I get the same thing from different departments of ed in different states. So why are you taking a kid who, because alternative education requires far more resources. You don't give them the money. You treat them like a garbage dump and you send these kids there and then you sit there and say, we are champions of our children and our future. It's a gaslight, isn't it? And it's so disrespectful of the community that you work in. Yeah, it's difficult. And and it's really hard to examine closely alternatives. The alternative education sector is very difficult to regulate. Uh, We Mm -hmm. have these accountability systems um, set up, you know, we're monitoring standardized test scores, we're monitoring graduation rates, um, absenteeism rates for our traditional schools. And with good reason, um, alternative school leaders are saying these are not great metrics for us to look at, you know, the reason our kids come here is because many of them are at risk of dropping out, they're Mm -hmm. failing many classes, they don't show up to school. Um, and so I am not aware, I would love to hear of a state um, that has found a way to set up an accountability system for alternative schools that encourages good school design, that incentivizes the right kinds of responses to students, that doesn't just let them, or doesn't just keep kicking them out, doesn't just, you know, resort to suspension or do really extreme kind of lockdown policies um, that encourage kids to just drop out of their own accord. Um, But it's difficult to incentivize and there's very little data for that reason. So in California, for example, the alternative schools have a whole separate accountability system. Um, They're called DAS schools, which I'm forgetting what that acronym stands for, but it's difficult to even find out what's happening in many of these schools. Um, it's difficult to get information about um, the quality of the curriculum. Um, so it's hard to report on. It's hard to, I, I'm yeah. sure it's hard to study kind of generally. And so because that is the case, if there's not a lot of information, kind of granular information about how these schools function and how they function as a sector, as a group, um, that might lead to good informed policymaking, um, because that's all difficult to get, you know, how do we come up with solutions? Exactly. But I think I think the yeah. best alternative schools are the ones that address the canary in the coal mine and figure out a way to keep it alive on the spot and then work from there 
in order to maintain and build up a community of respect for the students so that they are able to learn, and it includes the parents. But alternative schools are not all going to be the same, and you can't legislate that alternative schools must be the same because Philip comes into my program, I have to figure out where Philip's gaps are. I have to know what he needs to learn so that he can be successful and so he can continue to go. So maybe he's at the third grade level of reading. He can't write. And maybe he doesn't know very much in math. He can't even do a basic addition, subtraction, multiplication, division problem. You're a junior. What grade level? Yeah, you're a junior. Is this high school? But somehow you've got one year to turn it around, or else he's not going to graduate. Yeah, but he's a smart kid. I mean, there's something about him. I see it in his eyes. But we're going to start working with that. And so, little by little, a good alternative ed program and a good alternative ed staff doesn't look at him as a loser because he's not, because he's here at school. So that's that's a huge step. So we have to figure out. How are we going to get that? So I'm going to converse with him and we're going to start feeding him little pieces of things and showing him and giving him relevant components so that he can. So he. Right. The next best right. Place so that everything is coming along and you know, actually result, we're able to start not, getting yeah. him so that he will be able to. Maybe if he has to get his GED. Or maybe because he doesn't have that number of credits, or maybe we can find a way that we can fast track those credits because he's got it. And so he's just a brilliant guy. And so we can get him there. I was just sloughing off for the first 17 years. But I think the little by little (laughs) piece is what is so challenging. And I'm trying to put myself as I'm doing all this research and and as I'm pointing out all these things that I, I, um, you know, I'm saying schools shouldn't do them. They're being criticized for all these punitive policies. So what should they do? Um, And I spoke with a wonderful alternative school principal in Arizona, which was the third story in this series about suspending for absenteeism focuses um, a decent amount on an alternative school in Chandler, Arizona. And the principal described all these things that you just described. And it really is a little by little process and winning the trust of a student in convincing them to come back. Um, and I, it's just hard to imagine how that can be implemented at scale. You know, she runs a very small school. She is willing to keep pushing, keep feeding the positive messages to a kid as they continue to kind of you know, show up to school only a couple times a week or come late, um, you know, insisting that she is not going to suspend them for behavior that would have gotten them suspended in other schools because she knows mm-hmm. that that's not going to help. Um, it works great in her school, it sounds like. Um, but when is there time to educate around all of that? And you have to take your head out of the regular mainstream classroom. Yes, and, and you have to. And you, you have can't to have more than fifteen smaller. to eighteen kids. You can't have the eighteen is is really blowing out the walls. Yeah. I'm saying a hundred on the whole school ground. Well, it depends too. on how many staff you have and how big your facility is. Philip Philip took off. Philip yeah, took over after me in a one room schoolhouse, and I started out with yes. eighteen students, and um, some of them would just pop in because they were part of a shelter program. 
So mm-hmm. they would, they might, I might have them for a day and then they were gone and maybe somebody else came in. But, um, what were the ages, the range? It was, I, I want to say, I, okay, high school, 14 to 18. Right. When I first started, usually, it was seventh 15. grade through 12th. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But what yeah, we did yeah. was there's a way to incorporate. If you take a look at what skills all students need, you can run a program that way. You can talk about books. You can talk about writing. You can talk about social studies and government. You can talk about all these other pieces. And then you can give people um, like independent study that they can work on. So, yeah, because that way, if they have questions or they want to do something or, you know, they're not really understanding what's going on, then they know by just raising their hand and saying, yo, what am I doing here? What is this? What am I, what am I looking at? Every place is different on how they do it. I worked in a program where every Monday morning, the students would come in and we would teach them basic skills. Like how do you tell time? How do you use a ruler? What's measurement? And then we would Mm -hmm. also teach maybe something fun that we wanted to learn and they would do it. And so that would be just kind of working in the elements, the rudimentary elements that were required just to get along in life. Mm. I think one of the cardinal sins of education today is that classrooms just have too many students. It's just too many students. It ruins absolutely everything. You cannot teach effectively a group that you can't relate to or identify with or even develop a relationship with at all. Or if you have a kid that develops an adversarial relationship right off the bat, and then you've got like 25 kids, that just has, that's more room for that kid to innovate within that role. And you've just lost, you've lost the environment that is conducive to learning. And I think that's also Dickensian today. It's Dickensian. Pardon me? It's right out of Dickens, if you think about it. You know, you don't follow the line, you get kicked out. Mr. Bumble takes you and kicks yeah. you out on the streets. And he puts you someplace else where yeah, you're going to be somebody yeah. else's problem. You're no longer there, by the air. you know, but we're going to keep all these good little workers. Want more food. Yeah. And I'm referring to referring to all of oh, exactly this. yeah you want to you want your classroom yeah. to hum yeah hum along the workhouse and just get rid of that you changed out the workhouses for oh, schools yeah, the workhouse you're right took them out by the ear because the problem of scale is is <laughs> extreme though i mean we pledge in this country yeah. we say in this country that you know every child deserves a public education um i read a devastating story by Eli Saslow in the Washington Post about a teacher who came from the Philippines um, to, to a school in Arizona, and she's a highly qualified teacher in the Philippines. And um, for staff shortages, she was recruited to come here. Um, and she came because of the massive pay bump that it would get, even the... Mm-hmm. And she arrived and her classroom was mayhem. I mean, it was just chaos. And she was she was a hugely successful veteran teacher in the Philippines, but never faced the kind of behavior problems that she was seeing in these Arizona schools. And I really think part of that comes down to the free public education that we have here, the free compulsory public education that we have here in other countries. 
students approach education differently. Um, it's, you know, the, there's just a cultural difference to it that I think well, it's also hard to overcome. Nervous. Families approach it differently too. Yeah. I mean, their respect for it, I think. So, and we were, I think we were a little late to the game in the way that yeah. we, we began public education and we made it compulsory around the turn of the century between the 19th and the 20th century. I mean, it was in those, that those 20 years or so, I think, I think we discussed late the, 1890s. Well, we talked about it cause it's in the Nicole Goyo book. Um, oh, and they, so, and we used to have apprenticeships and we don't have that anymore. And so now everybody says, everybody has to go to college. Well, I don't want to go to college because I hear all these people saying that they spend too much money to go to college and I don't want to be there in debt. I have former students who are out buying houses. They've been working since they graduated. They're 25 and a couple of them are going off to buy another house because they're going to rent that one to their family. And, you know, I mean, they're figuring things out and they're very good at what they do in the, for a living. And they didn't go to college. And they just went right to work. So we, I think we like to promote things without really looking at what the consequences are for everybody. Or the inertia, like Tara was saying. It just has the inertia. It just keeps rolling until someone goes, what are we doing? (laughs) Oh, I hadn't thought about it in a while. Lack of innovation. (laughs) And when we do see innovation, yeah, well, yeah. then there's such a huge pushback because the educational machine, well, because we have the education industrial complex that's worth billions upon billions of dollars. Everything's that way. Everything is that way. But yeah. these are kids that really need to have it. And so they should be funding alternative education the same as they do regular education. Um, I'm surprised. I'm not sure. I I would like to look at some national statistics. I would be surprised if most states do it the way Oregon does in in having an 80% Mm -hmm. per pupil. Um, In California, from what I understand, districts run the alternative schools. They're not the way that you're describing it sounds like a charter school setup where you have an independent charter school that gets, you know, the state sets the per pupil. Charter schools in Oregon get 95%. Oh my goodness. Someone needs to write a story about that. (laughs) So the contract, the private, it's, it's the private contract. It's the private contract schools that the private contract alternative schools in Oregon that get the 80%. Hmm. Okay. And so then district run alternative schools would get a hundred percent. Right. Essentially. Cause the district mm-hmm. would. Yeah. Right. But yeah, what we've discovered, what we've discovered and what we've seen throughout the years is that are no real training programs for alternative ed. And so there's, there's just really nothing. It's a desert out there. And mm-hmm. just to teach people how to be, well, they have to be empathetic. Because you can't fake that. You can't learn that. You just have to. And you also have to be willing to take risks. You have to be able to be innovative. You have to be relentless in the pursuit of the next thing and be open-minded. And I think that our pre-K 
work that we did was some of the best training that we actually had for alternative education, because you can turn on a dime and it, you have a plethora of ideas to use. So you got to take your ego out of it because in alternative ed, you can't have ego. You've got to be there for the kids and ego just blocks all of that. One of the other things about alternative ed is it's more expensive actually than regular Well, yeah, because you need more it comes resources. with a higher price. You need more resources. The kids come with more uh, resources because of the learning disability or the 504 IEP mm -hmm. thing. Um, and so they kind of become oh, a little bit of resented because they are expensive. And so, well, how come they were making this? How come they get so much of a budget? How come this alternative school, um, you know, gets you know, 1.5, 1.75 funding and and it goes with the students. There's, they're cutting one of the um, schools out of the district that I live in up here in Washington State. It's the more expensive of the two alternatives. And the kids were 1.6 funding or something. And uh, then the other alternative is like 1.2 per student. It was a really good small environment school, really, really smartly designed, beautiful facility. And now they're going to kind of double the population and lower the cost per student. So it was first on the cutting board because it was so expensive. Hmm. Yeah, there are difficult politics around that, for sure. The kind of interdistrict zero sum that budgets are kind of politics. Yeah. Um, because in some ways, there's in, there is an incentive to transfer more kids. Disciplinary transfers to alternative schools make sense if you want to fully enroll your alternative schools because the lower, you know, if they're not filled to their capacity, then the per pupil cost is more because you're still paying for the staff. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways, um, you know, a push to reduce disciplinary transfers is going to disrupt in some districts enrollment in alternative schools to an extent that is going to mess up budgets and, and maybe force closures that then makes schools that might be good for students for other reasons um, right. know, no longer exist. That's a very good point. I hadn't thought of that. Well, there's always a consequence yeah. for any kind of action. So you have to take all of that into account, and that's very true. But as far as alternative education, I mean, students can also be given a menu. And that is a good approach. We had an administrator that had that approach. And if so. you have a menu of of options, because look, it's not work Tara, it's not working out for you here. I love you to death, but it's just not working out. I want you to start considering what it is that you want to do and how we can best help you. And it doesn't mean you're going to lose us, but you're going to be but maybe we can find a better place for you. And if you need to come back, you can. This isn't permanent, but, you know, just some way. And then give that menu to the student and just say, think about it. And if you need help, I will go with you and I will take you there or whatever in order That's for so interesting, though, I have to say, because um, that is a very similar conversation to some of the ones that I reported on. Um, in a more negative kind of context where kids and families are counseled out and, and said, you know, it's not working for you here. And, and the message to students is we don't want you here. Mm -hmm. And so 
Um, Depending, you know, it's, it's all on the messenger. Like what is the intention of the person who's saying it? I could see that message being delivered in a very kind and supportive way. Um, and also know that it's probably often delivered in a not so kind and supportive way, um, which makes it difficult to create policy and create rules around what's allowed and what, what is bad, um, and what is punitive discipline versus what is a supportive, um, kind of attempt to find something that really works for a kid. We had a good, we had a really good system. You recall, we had so many different programs or the high school. I had attendance policy usually. And if the, the kid was um, in attendance trouble, it'd be a contract. And if they violated that contract just three times, then I'd let them go. And it was very consistent, but there was other places for them to go. And I told them, listen, go figure it out. If you want back in, after a few months, come talk to me again. I'm not adverse to that, but you have to change. And I had every kid that came back graduate. Just They were stellar once they came back. But I always kept the door open. And we had other programs. We had other means. You know, like, okay, it's you're not working it out here. You're going to go to another program. And if you want back, I'll talk to you. But, you know, and so we kind of had – an we didn't give up on the kids. We had different places to try them out in. And generally speaking, they really appreciated that. They found a fit or they came back. So we didn't try to weed anybody out per se, but be very consistent with our policies. So they knew that when they were in school, they had to do the school thing. They had to come to school to do the school thing. And they had to have a behavior standard that was normal, you know. And that was it. You know, they're pretty basic, but there it was. But the one-room schoolhouse where we taught, if a kid didn't make it there, then they just, they were put into shackles and they were kind of bussed off. Oh, your guy. Yeah. Well, yeah, because they were in violation. But here's of the, the odd thing. Here's yeah. the odd thing. I still heard back from mine. And I went down to the, to the, to the, what do you call it? The lockup? for the for the students and i would go down there because i had friends who worked down there and occasionally i'd be there and the kids would just get so excited and they'd see me and they go tony and it was just (laughs) it was you know i mean you have that relationship with them so it's not they make choices on their own it's not you but you know schools have a one to fourteen percent impact on student outcomes of their lives well yeah, yeah. In general anything the outcome of everything one to 14 because percent. 86 to 99 percent of those outcomes are determined by environmental factors outside of the school yeah that's what i can't think too much about those statistics and i bet teachers have a hard time paying too close attention to them too because then what are we doing <laughs> focusing on schools we we want our schools to do so much, and it's good to keep in mind those statistics. Um, and it also feels very difficult because then it's like, well, what other lever do we have as a society if we can't look to the schools to fix everything? Well, we're not fixers. We are builders. Mm-hmm. And if we have, if if we're if you seek us to fix things then what you're going to get is a cockamamie contraption. You don't want me. But if you want us to build something, we can take whatever you give us. 
That's the beauty. That's the beauty of good educators, I think, is that you can take something and you can build something with it as long as it's willing to be malleable and to be open to the learning. But the teacher also has to be there and the circumstances have to be right, too, which they are for 99% of the time. So and that's that's another beauty of alternative education are the people that think that way. And as far as the what would a successful alternative school look like, um, I will put in the show notes and I will shoot it to you. There are the standards that are put out by the National Alternative Education Association. Mm. So um, that is one way to look at it. Um, yeah, but, I'll have to dig into those. And I think every district looks to find a way to create an alternative program depending on the needs of their population. New York City has completion schools, and they also have the transfer schools. Mm -hmm. Um, You have people who are doing remote learning now. You have, I don't know, there are so many different variations on what schools can do now um, as far as alternatives. So I think we're going in the right direction but people have to quit looking us at us as the dumpsters <laughs> and try to set, trying to set us on fire. But, you know, I don't know, Tara, I've learned so much from you today. Seriously. <laughs> yeah, it's an amazing amount. Yeah. I mean, well, thank oh, you for all your work. Seriously. Yes. Thank you for reading it. Thank yeah. you for engaging with it. Thank you so much. And yeah. um, so, I want to sign off by saying I'm going to put your links down in the down in the show notes. So if anybody wants to read your articles and there is a link on the articles where you can email her, you just click it. Correct? Yep, that's right. Come straight to me. Yep. And I should also plug the Heckinger Reports newsletters. We a lot of the topics we covered today are um, are delved into much more deeply mm-hmm. by some of my colleagues. We have an early childhood education newsletter. We have a future of learning newsletter that focuses on education innovation and some of these best practices. Um, we also have a higher education newsletter, um, and and then our main newsletter uh, allows people to once a week get all of everything that published in the prior weeks. So you see some of our really in depth reporting. And I'm going to say that you are privately funded, which means that any contribution that anybody can make to the Heckinger Report is greatly appreciated. That's right. Become a member. It only takes $35. (laughs) But read our stuff for free if you can't afford it. We love donations, but also we are here to serve. And it's fantastic stuff. It's it comes in. It comes in my mailbox. I read it first thing in the morning. And I'm set for the day, and it gives me so much to think about. So, thank you. Thank you. And so, with that, I am going to say, everybody have a wonderful week. So, until then, be safe. We will see you then. Bye bye. Aloha.